HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Meet and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene, personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chefs' grandmothers. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Derek Wagner of Nixon Broadway in Providence, Rhode Island, and Chef Brendan Vesey of the Joinery Restaurant in, in Newmarket, New Hampshire. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Derek and Brendan about the sustainability-focused organization, Chefs Collaborative, their passion for local and sustainable cooking, and we'll hear another double Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia revered chefs and made it her mission to introduce those chefs she admired to a wider public audience. Julia believed very strongly in promoting chef talent, seeing them as both technical experts 
and creative forces who could help inspire people to both cook and learn more about where good food comes from. She'd learned at the side of many great chefs, and she believed that this was an effective way for everyone to be taught more about cooking. The foundation had been hearing many food industry professionals and writers raving about an organization called Chefs Collaborative, notably how interesting and inspiring their annual conference was. What we found was a nonprofit dedicated to bringing chefs and culinary professionals together to build a better food system. It may not surprise you that not one but two Julia Child Award recipients, Chef Rick Bayless and one of this year's honorees, Susan Feniger, were co-founders of the organization all in their quest to not only be better chefs, but to make their profession, customers, and the world around us a better place in the process. The foundation was delighted to make a grant to Chefs Collaborative last year in order to help chefs from across the country attend the Chef Summit annual conference. It's our great privilege to have with us today two chefs who are actively involved in helping Chefs Collaborative pursue its goals. Chef Derek Wagner is a chef owner of Nick's on Broadway in Providence, Rhode Island, and he's the co-chair of the Chef's Collaborative's Board of Directors. Chef Brendan Vesey is the chef at the Joinery Restaurant in Newmarket, New Hampshire, and is a Chef's Collaborative local leader. They're here to tell us more about Chef's Collaborative and how it's helping chefs across the country reach their goal of changing menus and changing lives. Welcome to the podcast, chefs. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's really great to have the opportunity to share the important and exciting work that Chefs Collaborative does. So let's kick it off. Derek, tell us more about what Chefs Collaborative does, what its mission is, and, and kind of what its values are. Of course. Um, thank you, Todd. Um, at Chefs Collaborative, our overall mission is to inspire and educate and really celebrate chefs and food professionals that are working towards uh, trying to build a better food system um, and starting with their own uh, restaurants or, or lice or, or workspace. Um, what we really uh, want to accomplish is to impact uh, the food landscape and our food system in, in a really positive way um, by leveraging and uh, helping to harness the power of chefs as influencers and food purchasers and trying to get chefs to write menus and think in a way that impacts more than just creating delicious food. Of course, that's uh, one of our uh, primary goals as cooks and chefs is to make delicious, wholesome food. But uh, beyond that, we see such a value and opportunity in uh, what a chef and a cook or a food professional at any level can accomplish by their decisions. We want, really want to help them to, uh, to use that power and use that voice as a platform to create positive, meaningful change and impact. I see. That, that's a really helpful start. I think one of the things that also helps bring an organization to life is to understand how the people sort of came to it. So m- maybe if you also talked about it, how did you first get involved with Chefs Collaborative? Uh, sure. Um, myself, uh, I was introduced to it early in the, in the late 90s by my old chef uh, through one of their uh, campaigns to connect farmers with, um, with chefs and, and local produce in their areas. Um, and I started to 
uh, work with it then. Um, and then fast forward about uh, six or seven years later, um, when I opened my own restaurant and I was having um, these challenges in regards to sourcing uh, seafood specifically at that time, um, from my uh, local areas, things that were seasonal and indigenous and um, local, um, I then found my way back to Chefs Collaborative as a, as a resource there, and, and I've been involved ever since. And what, what kind of ways do you think it's helped you? Uh, for me, it, it started with uh, just a, a connection point. You know, it was a way to access information, um, and to access professionals, whether they be other chefs or food purchasers sort of having the same struggles uh, or people that were further on in their development as a chef or a food purchaser that could shed some light and some advice. Um, and then also access to, uh, to fishermen and, and also fisheries management information and resources just to understand the entire landscape and and have an ability to connect directly to that information and to those people that were working in those spaces. I see. And you were you were saying about talking about chefs purchasing power. And so is it is it an advocacy organization? Is it a resource organization or or does it actually facilitate transactions or do all of those things? I would say the first two more than the the latter. Um certainly we are a uh an advocacy uh, organization in, in the regards to uh, having an enormous collection of of chefs and food purchasers and food professionals that are passionate and working towards uh, clear goals and impact. Um, we have, uh, you know, worked on campaigns in the past uh, to that were that were specific and very advocacy focused and focused. Um, but it is a, above all else a connection point and a resource and, and to me. Okay. And Brendan, I get you to weigh in now. So tell us more about I, I know one of the things you participate in or perspectives you have is as a local leader. And can you kind of tell us more about what that is and means? Absolutely. So Chefs Collaborative is made up of local groups across the country. Uh, so when a member decides to join, they are connected with the local group that is closest to them, if there's one in their area. And if there isn't, and there seems to be demand and desire and on all ends of it, then the board will reach out to that chef and ask if they are interested in creating one in their area. So our local groups kind of work on a street level within our community to increase membership, hold educational events, fundraising dinners. And uh, the part that I really enjoy currently is we almost get to act as like a baby board where the board members like Derek and the others have ideas and they meet and discuss and then we kind of get to offer our own feedback on those. And um, some of the local leaders then grow into board members depending on you know geography and availability and all that stuff and how did you first get involved so when i was in hampton roads virginia i have a restaurant in norfolk 
and I really wanted to serve local food. And I found it very difficult, especially to translate that to my customers and why anyone would care and why they should pay more. And I found Chess Collaborative, which was this amazing organization of like-minded people who had kind of already distilled this message into easier talking points. And I was able to connect through that. And um, when I relocated to New Hampshire, I found a community where this kind of sourcing was already second nature. And I found out how active the New Hampshire chapter was through a chef who's now on the board, Evan Mallet, and he kind of led me along to make sure I was still active in Chefs Collaborative and become more active. And then I applied for a scholarship and I got to go to the summit and it was probably the most incredible professional experience I've ever had. And since then I've been very active. Let me follow up on that because everyone goes on and on about the summit being like life changing and, and, um, amazing. So, so what is it about this summit that, that, that produces such amazing, uh, results? Well, I think that we, as chefs, we have terrible schedules. We work long hours. And as much as we love creativity and the new, really, it's a life of repetition. And there's a beauty in perfecting that repetition and improving on it constantly. But it can start to feel a little isolating. And you can forget why you're in it and why you do it and why you spend so much time on the phone with farmers and driving to pick up ingredients when you could make one phone call or order through an app and have everything delivered to your door on one truck. And then you go and you meet people from across the country who are just like you. And they're doing the same, um, I don't know, maybe foolish ideas because they believe in something. And uh, it's, it's, it's just great to realize you're not the only one. And then you make these connections and now if I have a problem, I can call people who I know have already solved it in California or D.C. or Florida or wherever. I see. So it's kind of a combination of a problem-solving tool, but it's also a kind of community of support that the chefs can then use to reinforce what they're trying to accomplish and actually bring it back to the community building they're, they're doing through their cooking wherever their, their restaurant is. Exactly. And so is that why you mentioned kind of the, I think back to your experience when you were still in Virginia about you were having kind of communication issues between getting your customers to understand what you were trying to achieve through local sourcing and why it mattered. Is that one of the ways that the organizations helped you kind of achieve your goals? I think so. And I think it also helped me to stick with it, to see that I wasn't the only one. And now in that area has taken off and other people are doing it and it's not a foreign thing. I see. So, Derek, I was going to ask you, I realized that a lot of people may not, uh, because we have quite a broad audience of people who are kind of across the spectrum of interested in food, so we're not necessarily like a diehard foodie program or chefs only. So I think for a lot of people, this is an organization they've not heard of unless they actually already are a chef or work in restaurants. But to give us an idea, it's a pretty big organization in terms of the membership. What what are your numbers approximately now? That's tough for me to put a finger on exactly. I know that we have an incredibly large and vast network um, as far as how many um, active members are. Um, you know, I know that it's 
it's in the hundreds on the high hundreds. Um, but I, I don't, I wouldn't have that off the top of my head. Uh, but it is a vast network and we work hand in hand with other organizations, nonprofits, um, and, uh, and different groups, uh, like slow food and James Beard and, you know, the EDF and so many, um, uh, chef action network and, um, to to partner on specific issues or to help uh, gear chefs towards uh, information or other programming that is like-minded and and uh, that they can engage in or that we can partner with as as an organization. Um, but we, as Brandon was saying, we have groups all over the country uh, where there are. Uh, communities of of chefs and and food professionals that are also working hard in their own communities uh, and together usually to to make these changes and and have them uh, impact their their individual communities on in a major way um so then we come back together at things like the summit and also uh you know via phone calls and online meetings uh throughout the year to connect and talk about these things and share resources and also to promote uh ideas to each other and uh and how to reflect those back into uh our customers and to our communities and to our staff on how they can uh, support good change and whether that be, you know, professional skills um, like workshops, uh, butchery demos, um, sourcing techniques or, or points um, or uh, food waste reduction. Um, there's, there's just so many things that we work to try to, to make an impact on. And I, I know the organization has this kind of motto of building a better food system. And so for you as a chef and being really involved, what is what does that mean to you or what what's your kind of personal approach to contributing to building a better food system? Uh, that's a great question because it is pretty ba- big. It's kind of a, a, you know, a vast concept. Uh, and I think it starts at the micro level you know, in, in our own kitchens. And I think, you know, Brendan could, could back me up on, on that. You know, we, we, we are faced as chefs with choices um, every day in, in terms of what foods we're going to work with, um, how we're going to work with them, uh, where we're going to get them from, uh, how uh, our staff is going to interact with them and with each other and how we're going to interact with our community and how uh, we're going to create these menus or platforms for our customers to, to support with their dollars. And I think at a really basic level, uh, a chef or cook has the opportunity to um, drive consumers and eaters uh, money and dollars, therefore their support um, to good places um, and mm. good products. So I think at a, at a really basic level, um, we are able to influence and, and steer um, or move the pendulum hopefully into 
um, a more positive direction. And I think um, from a more uh, macro level, you know, if we can empower and, and connect and inspire chefs and menu writers all over the country to understand this value and to really own it and, and work towards that in their own uh, space and in their own community, um, then we can impact a really large scale change and impact. And, and I think that's, um, you know, at a, at a really quick snapshot, uh, distills down uh, our focus. Brenda, did you want to add to that? What, what, what you, your kind of mindset is, is it similar about what building a better food system means? Absolutely. And I, agree with everything Derek said and also our vision for the organization is that our practices will become second nature to chefs across the country. So by training young cooks and having these people in your kitchen and just kind of exposing them to this idea that there are other ways of getting food and it doesn't have to all come from uh, an institutional or factory type setting, then I think they go out and they spread that message and they want to work in different kinds of kitchens or run their own kitchen and their purchasing practices are going to follow and they might choose a different farm but than we would or a different tier of protein than we might but by choosing what we will serve and more importantly what we won't serve I think we we do impact our local customer base for what they certainly we can control what they eat in our restaurant but we start to alter what they purchase at the grocery store, uh, whether they go to farmer's markets, who they buy their fish and meat from. Um, and so I think we, we really do have an impact, and I think it is starts on a very small level, but as a whole, we can become quite powerful. And to the point where vendors don't, they kind of stop offering us the stuff that they, they know we don't want. And maybe they're selling somebody down the street and that's fine. But in our little corner of the world, we are choosing things that are more sustainable, better for our our environment, and maybe rarely served for some odd reason, just because they fell out of favor at some point, or they were a little bit more work. I feel like you're both almost describing a kind of subversive revolution that in all these restaurants across the country where they're like-minded chefs through their food which people are consuming and finding nourishing and delicious they're they're it's almost like they're digesting a direction that chefs are moving the the food system in without even knowing it It, it's both sort of exciting but like i said it's actually a little subversive because it's very uh, in that way under the radar i think you're absolutely right and i also think that that's the big trick right in how we write our menus not a trick but the way we present what we want to do. It needs to be accessible and delicious and enjoyable at a fair price point for everyone. So not everyone wants the lecture. Most people don't want the lecture. But we and our staff have to be ready to give that information when it is requested. So if someone comes thinking they're going to order salmon, but we are on the Atlantic coast, we don't have salmon um, that we're willing to serve. So now they're going to have redfish, and they may have never had redfish before. 
then they take that information with them and they go. And if they want to know why they're eating redfish, that's fine. If they just want to say, man, I had this fish, it was really good. And then they go to the fish market and they ask about redfish. And that guy says, oh, you can't sell redfish. But then 10 people ask him for redfish. And then he starts bringing in redfish. Yeah, it's a lot of re-education. Derek, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think he hit the nail on the head, but I think about five or ten years ago, um, the farm-to-table movement started to get a lot of backlash um, about maybe overspeaking or becoming something too precious that um, was inaccessible, either price point or sort of uh, bully pulpit style of, of lecturing and 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 maybe even this uh, condescending or unenjoying uh, you know vibe of people wanting to go out to restaurants and just wanting to eat and and wanting it to be fun again and not wanting to be um, you know talked down to or made to feel bad about their choices or having to do too much heavy lifting while they're trying to enjoy, you know, a dinner out with their loved ones. So I think it, it forced everyone to, to look inward about the messaging and, um, and just sort of how we were delivering content and trying to connect with not just cooks and food professionals, but diners and the general public. Um, and I think, you know, we look at it now as a more balanced approach and in trying to connect with people. And if, as Brandon was saying, uh, they want to understand, hopefully they do want to understand more about what they're eating or why we're choosing it, you know, we'll be ready with that information. But um, it's not something that we have to cram down their throats, <laughs> so to speak. And, um, it can be fun. It, they can be just really natural choices that diners can make. Um, and as chefs and menu writers, um, we can hopefully create these practices that are uh, changing behaviors and not just being trendy or being seen as something that's gimmicky, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Okay. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to talk to Chef Derek and Chef Brendan more about how they make local and sustainable happen in their own restaurants. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Ah, the sun is setting that much earlier. Breezes are getting cooler. With the change of seasons to fall, I know I start to crave heartier things for breakfast, like oatmeal. If you're looking for something new or different, Bob's Red Mill offers Scottish oatmeal. It's the original porridge of ancient Scotland. The oats are the same as other oats, but they are ground between two millstones, rather than being steamed and rolled like typical oats, producing a smooth, porridge-like texture. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code JuliasKitchenPod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings and to try Scottish oatmeal. We've been talking about some pretty high-minded ideals when it comes to cooking well and being a conscientious chef, all things Julia would have been all for. 
But I think I wanted to dive down a little bit into exactly how do you walk the talk? And I think turning it back to kind of exactly what goes on. And we were starting to talk about that with the uh, when Brennan was talking about what fish he has in the menu. So how exactly do you walk the talk in your your day to day lives running a restaurant? Derek, do, do you want to kind of translate how these ideals fall into to practice in, in, in the day-to-day at Nick's? Well, you know, on the day-to-day, you know, we've talked about menu writing, right? As a chef, as a menu writer, um, I have to make choices that are hopefully creative and delicious that will resonate with my cooks and my staff and get them excited and then will also resonate and connect with uh, my diners. Uh, so it starts there, uh, which meats and fish uh, and produce uh, am I going to use? Where am I going to get it from? Um, how am I going to get it? Um, and those choices really, for me, are the, the starting point uh, or the catalyst for how I can, um, you know, connect back to that philosophy and, and that work. Um, am I going to support local uh, smaller farmers? Am I going to call... Uh, you know, uh, my my fishermen to see what they have, um, or you know, in a, in a in the past, you would say, okay, I want to I want to use this fish. I'm gonna just find somewhere to buy it, right? And now we're trying to think more in a way of like, on demand. What what's available? What can I use that's going to be delicious and seasonal and local, but also something that's going to be readily available or something that's going to work for my farmers or work for my fishermen that's going to help them be better at their job. Um, And just sort of working towards community in that way where it's not just all about us. It's about how we fit in this circle or in this, in this, you know, community. Um, And then also with our staff, you know, just sort of training and, and the way that we um, are trying to push the culture forward in a, in, a, in a healthier, more sustainable way. You know, how am I going to schedule the staff? How many hours are they going to be there for? Um, how are we going to structure the day-to-day operations and, and communications in a way that's healthy and exciting and engaging um, that hopefully creates a path for them to be uh, just, you know, excited about their job and, and thinking about it as a long-term career. Um, so there's there's just that as well. And Brendan, for you, how, how do you translate uh, the, these ideals? Is it quite similar to what Derek's doing? It seems like it's now a lot about a chef has to now be more than a great cook, but be really conscious of what they're doing. Yes, I think especially we're these pockets of the country where we have this big food movement going on, it's almost an expectation that you're going to source better. And we spend a lot more time on it, I think, than we would if I was running, say, a pizzeria or something where I just ordered from one vendor. Now, there are great sustainable pizzerias too, but let's think about like a basic restaurant who doesn't really care where their stuff comes from. Their only motivation is price. Our motivations have to start with some of us are sustainability, some of us are geography or relationship, and we often need one, two, and even three sources for the same product. 
before we can feel comfortable putting it on the menu because we have to know that we're going to be able to get it. Mm. And when you have a small farmer growing something for you, you've now committed to purchase it, but when it's gone, it's gone. Uh, it's not the same as a commercial vendor where they're just going to, they'll find another source and get, it keeps trickling down as asparagus, say, move from Ecuador to Mexico to California and then back to wherever, Peru. And, and so in that way, we spend a lot of time emailing, texting, phone calls, and even driving and, and picking a lot of stuff up ourselves because the farmers are just as busy as we are, especially at this time of year. And we may want something, and they may not have time to bring it to us. Um, the one thing that I has been really helpful recently is that the more you do this, I'm sure Derek has this happen as well, but people begin coming out of the woodwork and coming to you. And so I had someone show up recently, I guess it's been a two-year relationship now, with lambs. And she had raised lambs as a 4-H member since she was a little girl and now she's a teacher and wanted some supplemental income so once a month she brings us a whole lamb and it's incredible it's better than anything i could buy anywhere else we uh have to butcher it ourselves which i think derek us also can talk about uh, but whole animal butchery becomes a big part of sustainable utilization and that is a labor challenge and a space storage challenge and a menu writing challenge. So the menu maybe can't say lamb shank because a lamb only has four shanks. And mm. so it has to say lamb and then it line up every day. You have to say tonight it's a shank and tomorrow it's a rib chop and the next day it's a flank steak. And all along you are kind of translating this idea into your staff and your diners that animals have multiple parts and vegetables have seasons and they come back and they say, Oh, do you have that Brussels sprout dish or that tomato dish? And we'll say, we will when the season comes around. And so whether they're thinking food that way or not, it gets kind of gets, it keeps trickling into their, into their brains. I have to go back to the lamb. Is she delivering a live lamb to you then? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) That would be impressive. Um, and probably illegal, I'm sure, in some way. And I'm sure that some restaurants who feel the same way that I do have been involved in things like that. Um, but no, she goes through um, a local slaughterhouse, which is, I think later on you're going to ask us about challenges. And that's a big challenge. A lot There aren't that many local small-level slaughterhouses that allow small farmers to have their animals um, slaughtered in the respectful fashion that they expect based on how much they've taken care of them during life and how much they are valued in death and consumption. So she will drive the live lamb to the slaughterhouse and then pick it up three days later and then bring it to us. So she is delivering several lambs from whatever her spring lambing season has has gained, but the the sort of way that chain works is she is using a slaughterhouse, but the slaughterhouse is only taking it to a certain stage before it's then delivered to you. Yes, we could have it cut, but this protein is already so much more expensive that in a way it makes more sense for us to 
to take on that labor than to have the slaughterhouse do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it's it's almost like this retraining of the whole cycle of food production and food consumption back to these ways that used to exist that are actually. I mean, there, there's almost nothing more ancient than lamb slaughtering if you know your religious history or similar things. And I'm sure there's many vegans who are horrified by this conversation, but it's actually a very natural process on earth, just like it is. I know I have to retrain myself and I read late. And one of the best ways as a consumer and not a chef in the grocery store is to read labels because most places now in at least Western countries require, you know, source labeling. And if you can tell that it's been flown from clear around the world, it's probably not in season, but it's very difficult to train yourself to not expect to be able to eat whatever you can think of at that given moment. And uh, I think that's part of the cycle that you guys as chefs and Chefs Collaborative are working on uh, on breaking because you, you, you just think long term it's it's not been good for society and the planet and it's not sustainable. Is that sort of the right way to think about it, Derek? Yes, no, totally. And and it's funny, while you were talking there, you, you made me think of an example. You know, when I started doing um, whole animal butchery, as Brendan was saying, um, and, you know, it was just when social media and Instagram was really starting to kick off and it was giving chefs and small business owners like this platform to connect and celebrate and share without having this crazy advertising budget that none of us ever had. And I started, you know, I was really proud of the work that we were doing and the connections we were making and learning about the process and, and sharing that, those sort of like the struggles and pictures and about, you know, cutting up the meat. And, and I started getting these, you know, emails or, or people were making these comments and about how cruel it was uh, to, to show some of these pictures. And it, it really affected me and it sort of, you know, it hurt my feelings that chefs were sensitive people. Um, and I, uh, I, I waited to, and tried to think of how I would respond. And in the meantime, this uh, slew of vegetarians and supporters uh, of, of my restaurant just started doing it for me and saying how even as vegetarians, they knew me and the restaurant and they supported what we were doing um, and it and it really moved me, you know, and that that these people who didn't eat meat sort of understood what I was trying to do and and stuck up for me. And then it also it gave us this opportunity to have this conversation about sourcing and, and meat and the importance of uh, of knowing and understanding where your food comes from and and the weightiness of of consuming you know, something that was a living, breathing animal. Um, and, and it should affect you and you should think about it. And if it does, um, affect you in a way that, that, that you don't want to eat it anymore, then, then that's okay. And you shouldn't eat it anymore. Um, but it, it gives us the opportunity to, to connect with that. Um, and in terms of uh, butchering, uh, you know, because we do the whole animal uh, butchery and sourcing directly from the farm, you know, we're we're not buying uh, or putting on the menu 
just tenderloin or just hanger steak, you know, where a hanger steak, even on a 1,200-pound steer, you might get two portions of hanger steak, right? And so if somebody has hanger steak only on their menu, think about how many cows have had to die in order for that, right? Um, so for us, because we're able to utilize the whole animal, we're actually responsible for far less animal death because I might get a whole hog or a half a cow and that, that will feed our restaurants for anywhere between three to five weeks. Yeah, no, that's the whole quotient that really ups the sustainability and that's the, the cycle that, that has kind of been broken that I think chefs like you are really focused on trying to, to change. So let's and talk also, about one of the it, it also other gives big the farmer hurdles, is, um, the ability to make a sale that's really impactful to their farm and their business. Um, you know, you, uh, farmers don't grow pork chops or they don't grow bacon. They have to grow, uh, you know, a, a 180 to 350 pound animal that they have to care for and feed and and so when. A chef like Brendan or myself buys a whole animal, you know, it helps them to sustain their their farm. And the practices that they use to raise those animals, right? So I wanna before we run out of time, I wanted to shift gears and just get your comments on food waste, because I knew that's, you know, a big and it's always been a big issue, but it's a bigger issue, I think, in people's consciousness. And I know it's an issue that Chefs Collaborative is trying to to focus on uh, tackling with more focus. So uh, could you guys both weigh in about, I assume that's a, a continued challenge that you have in your, I think, in talking about whole animal butchery and the philosophies that you put towards it, that obviously cuts down on waste. But I assume with you're, you're still subject to um, local uh, health regulations and those things impact that Um Brenda, did you want to pick that up? Yes. In a way, I think we also kind of bring on more waste on ourselves because we are buying products whole. Um, The health department and a lot of kitchens are a lot more comfortable getting things that are pre-prepared, portioned, vacuum sealed with a time date stamp. And they're just kicking the trash. They're just not seeing it ever. It's absorbed through a mechanized food system that they're not a part of and they have no control over where it goes. Um, If we buy our carrots whole, you know, maybe we throw away the tops, some of the tops, the ones we can't make into something because we make carrot top pesto, but you can only make so much of it before um, it's not going to get consumed and peels or we decide maybe we say, you know what, we're not going to peel these carrots because they're fresh. We're going to scrub them instead and they're beautiful. And so I think we do bring more on ourselves. So we have a lot of compost that then goes back to the farms. We do have less plastic, which is great because there is no source for that or final source. And I think that chefs spend a lot of time dealing with trash, whether, you know, it's not the part they sell you on um, in culinary school or television, but there's a, a lot of time spent thinking about and dealing with and cleaning. And, and I think that, considering the entire life cycle of a product when you purchase it is becoming more of a consciousness across society. And I think it translates quite well to food. And um, I think customers are coming more around that, willing to 
buy whole products and think about what happens to the rest of it as opposed to, say, buying a pre-prepared fruit in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And Derek, did you want to comment on kind of what chefs, how Chefs Collaborative is kind of embarking on dealing with or helping chefs deal with those issues of food waste that Brennan was talking about? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, as Brennan was saying, chefs, you know, we deal with, we've been dealing with food waste and trim uh, and scraps and and how that impacts our bottom line or uh, just our overall operation, you know, forever. Uh, And what we're finally starting to realize is that we now have this connectivity with understanding uh, waste in general and and how impactful food waste is to our environment, uh, you know, with uh, highlighting and understanding of uh, the the incredibly large amount of food insecurity that's going on in in the world um and then also with this other piece of how much food is ending up in landfills and going to waste it's it's shocking and you know when we see these opportunities uh to impact in a twofold way and get people thinking about these uh, these challenges, but also uh, in that they're challenging seeing the opportunity in 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 these situations. Uh, one of the things that we we say uh, at Chefs Collaborative is is what waste, right? It's not waste. Uh, like what can we do with it? You know, it's an opportunity. Um, and we have uh, like sort of a what waste campaign where. We're trying to get chefs to promote and share the ways that they cut down on food waste. And that might be something small, like what Brandon was saying about, like, taking the tops of your carrots and washing them and making a great pesto out of them. Or scrubbing your carrot and and not peeling it and not having any trim. Um, But taking each vegetable or meat or fish and sharing a tip that they have in their own kitchen that they can celebrate this delicious food item that might come out of that idea, but also this solution uh, to, to cut down on waste. And in turn, and we're, you know, there's such a win-win for diners and for, and for um, chefs, right? Because you're creating something really interesting and really delicious. uh, And you're also helping to cut down on your waste, uh, to increase your production. So hopefully you're, you're getting more value out of the product you're already buying. Um, and you're having a, a more minimal or positive impact on the environment um, and creating compost programs, as Brendan t- touched on, uh, as a way to like backstop whatever you can't repurpose or use creatively uh, will go back into a positive uh, source for food production, you know, in the future. Uh, we did a great uh, partnership um, with uh, North Carolina State University and the Wasted documentary, um, which was Anthony Bourdain's documentary, where we um, were hosting and partaking in a series of national events and film screenings and dinners and receptions 
um, that were we ha- having these incredible conversations with uh, individual communities about these opportunities, and um, that that was another really impactful way. Yeah, I think the mantra of that we can all use at home of what waste and just thinking about that of those little things you can do, whether it's composting or not um, trimming or peeling your carrots. If every, I, I think people want to jump into really big things, but if you just start with a small, one little small thing every day, it does really add up. So we're going to come back after the break. Uh, both chefs are going to each share their own Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired their, them in their career. All right, Derek, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to to get to meet her a couple of times, and I would say I was 20, 21, 22, and I was um, the chef at a at a restaurant uh, during the IACP conference. And she came into the restaurant and I was, of course, the waiter came into the kitchen and said, you're never going to guess who's in the dining room. And I said, who? And I said, Julia Child. And I was like, you're kidding me. Holy shit. And, um, you know, of course, just totally nervous, you know, like a just, it, it was the, you know, as a chef to meet somebody like that, especially with a career and reputation, you just don't know how it's going to go and you get nervous. Uh, so of course I, 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 I put a clean apron on, I go out into the dining room and I say, hi, Mrs. Child, it's really a pleasure to meet you. And, and the hair this larger than life, just personality with such accomplishment and, she just grabbed my hand. She must have saw how nervous I was. And she said, oh, dear, you know, have a seat. And I was just in awe of the way that she was um, just this positive uh, force, even at that age. And um, I asked her if there was anything I could make for her. or if she, And... And she just looked at me and it said, you know, do you have any vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce? And it was just this really funny, laughable moment where she just totally un, uh, you know, unhinged any fear or apprehension or nervousness that I had or pretension that, that I thought there might have been with someone of that success. And 
we, you know, we got to chat for a few minutes and I made her a big bowl of ice cream and, uh, and it was just something that stuck with me. And, uh, you know, it really spoke to her persona and I look back at her career and her impact and how she made uh, food and good food accessible and also fun, right? Uh, and and she had such a reach and such an ability to connect and inspire and educate in this authentic and warming way. Okay, wonderful. Ice cream with Julia. Brendan, what, what's your Julia moment? Uh, so I never had the good fortune of meeting Julia but I did work at a restaurant where there was a television above the bar and it showed nothing but the old series with the sound turned off and there were never sports. The bartender didn't change the channel. It was just on a constant loop of Julia and it really helped to frame this lovely French restaurant experience and occasionally there'd be the episode with the bouillabaisse where she has the huge knife and she's hacking away at the egg skeletons <laughs> and the giant cothead and showing everyone not to be afraid of your food. And then um, there's a quote of hers from another episode that I try to take with me a lot and I share with other cooks is that she talks about you have to try and that you will fail and that cooking is a series of failures and you fail and you fail and you fail and you, fail and you get better. I mean, while we've been doing this interview, my phone's been beeping at me and I'm sure I've probably had three or four failures in the last hour. And I think like Derek said, as chefs, we're sensitive people and we're only minutes away from our next failure. And um, I think the idea of failing upward and the way she understood us as chefs is um, something that really helps to connect all of us in this um, big circle of kind of what we do in the world. That's really nice. And I'm conscious of uh, two, two busy chef's time. So I think on, on that note, uh, we should wrap up. And I thank you again for both uh, sharing your insights as chefs and filling us in more about Chefs Collaborative. And hopefully, uh, we can follow up again in, in uh, I don't know, a year's time or so and see what kind of progress everyone's made. So I appreciate you guys being with us. Yeah, Todd, thank you so much. Uh, to you and the Julia Child Foundation and to the Heritage Radio Network for having us on. And it was great to catch up and share some of the things that we do. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Todd, and thanks for all your support of Chef Collaborative. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Let us know how you are cooking and eating more sustainably. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. Sorry, that's .org. Please follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you're a chef or you know someone who is and you want to know more about Chefs Collaborative, go to chefscollaborative.org and you can find them on social media. Search at Chefs Collaborative on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, it's at Chef C-O-L-L-A. If you want to learn more about Chef Derek Wegner and his uh, restaurant, Nick's on Broadway in Providence, search at Nick's on Broadway, all one word on Instagram and Twitter. 
and at nicks-on-broadway on Facebook. And for more about Chef Brendan Vesey and the Joinery Restaurant in New Hampshire, you can search at Joinery Restaurant on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at JoineryNH on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld. Our theme song is New French Worn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners find the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.